it was visionary. Completely techno-utopian. To create a sustainable, equitable community. Using technology to improve urban life. Sustainable development. There seemed like a lot of secrecy surrounding the project. This part gets a little bit more eerie. Predictive policing. Test bed. Measuring people's activity, where they went, what they were doing, made us uneasy. Hello and welcome to CC Lay's podcast, Justice Versus. I'm your host, Maria Rio. In March of 2017, Sidewalk Labs, a sister company of Google, was chosen by Waterfront Toronto to develop Toronto's Portlands. Waterfront Toronto is an organization administering projects along Toronto's waterfront. It is made up of a partnership between three levels of government, the City of Toronto, the Province of Ontario, and the federal government. The deal was meant to develop the eastern waterfront property known as Keyside, which is the largest area of undeveloped waterfront property in a major North American city. The partnership between Sidewalk Labs and Waterfront Toronto was first met with fanfare and excitement. At a press conference announcing the project, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau described Sidewalk Labs as a leader in urban innovation and said that the project would create a testbed for new technologies in Keyside, technologies that will help us build smarter, greener, and more inclusive cities. Sidewalk Labs made big promises to solve major problems associated with urban living, housing costs, climate change, social inequality, and commute times, to name a few. All of these benefits would be brought on through technological innovations and incentivized by the collection of data. However, as plans for the project were made public, concerns regarding transparency, the treatment of citizens' data, and the general erosion of privacy began being raised by thousands of Toronto residents, community organizations like Block Sidewalk, and of course, CCLA. For those who don't know... Block Sidewalk was a campaign organized by about 30 Toronto residents passionate about the future of the city. They believe urban development should benefit all people and think city buildings should be managed by elected officials, not corporations. Lester Brown has been a Toronto resident for 20 years and has been very active in local neighborhood associations, community development committees, and educational initiatives. For over three decades, he has lived walking distance from where the Keyside project was meant to be built. He was also one of the early organizers of Block Sidewalk before becoming a co-applicant in the CCLA case against Waterfront Toronto. We asked Lester about his concerns with the Keyside project. There were a lot of questions and a lot of issues that people were not able to find the information regarding and basically seemed like a lot of secrecy surrounding the project. And those are the things that made us uneasy that it wasn't an open, transparent negotiation or deal. On April 16, 2019, CCLA, along with co-applicant Lester Brown, commenced proceedings against Waterfront Toronto, seeking a reset of the Keyside project. We argued that Waterfront Toronto never had the authority to turn a Toronto neighbourhood into a data surveillance testbed, nor to make policy regarding the collection, ownership, management, or control of residents' data. The Keyside project would permit the commoditization of personal data and let Sidewalk Labs do non-consensual mass surveillance. This is a violation of Canadians' personal and collective privacy rights under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. CCLA argued the Keyside project was in violation of three sections of the Charter. Section 2. The right to freedom of assembly and association. 
There is a vital relationship between the freedom to associate and the privacy in one's associations. Violation of privacy through persistent and pervasive surveillance forces citizens to involuntarily disclose their associations and discourage gatherings. For example, would you organize against a company if they could potentially monitor or impact your living situation? If police forces wanted access to this information, would it be protected? Section 7. The Right to Life, Liberty and Security Section 7 of the Charter guarantees your personal security. The continuous and pervasive monitoring integral to the Keysight project could have imposed constraints on individual liberties and caused serious state-imposed psychological stress. A person's ability to make private decisions free from state or state-authorized interference should be protected, and this could not be guaranteed in a mass surveillance project. Finally, CCLA argued that the Keysight project was in violation of Section 8, the right not to be unreasonably searched. Canadians maintain a reasonable expectation of privacy. They do not expect that their personal information will be subject to mass capture or possible exploitation by a private sector for-profit corporation. The Smart City project would have allowed details of a person's movements, actions, identity, behaviors, and characteristics to be captured and subject to exploitation. As part of this episode, I spoke with Dr. Brenda McPhail, CCLA's Privacy Surveillance and Technology Program Director. Her work focuses on protecting privacy rights and creating public awareness about the ways privacy is at risk. We discussed the Keysight Project, privacy as a constitutional right, and the way privacy is connected to many of our other charter rights. Brenda, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me on. I've been looking forward to it. So first, let's talk about your experience. What brings you to this kind of work? Privacy is probably one of the emerging and foundational civil liberties issues of the 21st century. And in part, that's because privacy is a right that's at a root of all of the other rights or many of the other rights that we enjoy in a democracy and that in Canada are protected in our Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So it's very difficult to have free expression if you don't have the privacy rights that allows you to read things that you want to read, even if they're controversial, have conversations and arguments about controversial topics and developing your own opinions and figuring out how you can be a productive citizen in a democracy. Privacy is a fundamental human right. It's not just a right that's important and that we deserve by nature of being human in and of itself, but it's also a right that helps us enjoy other rights. I talked about freedom of expression a minute ago. Another big, really important one is freedom of association. So we're in a time right now where We're increasingly aware of the toxic systemic racism that pervades our country. And one of the ways that people are standing up against that is by protesting. If you don't have some ability to participate in protests without feeling like you're going to be watched, judged, and possibly experience harassment or prosecution by police, you're probably going to think twice about putting your beliefs and your body on the front line of a protest. So that's another reason why privacy rights are particularly compelling at this particular time in our society. The other reason that Canadians need to be informed about their rights to privacy is because there are a lot of forces that are trying to tell us that it's not really a right, or that it's a right, but it's not an absolute right, which is true, but a misleading formulation because many of our rights are not absolute. 
there are all kinds of forces, particularly commercial forces, that are trying to tell us that giving up personal information about ourselves is simply the new cost of doing business in modern society. Companies like that, they benefit if they can convince people that it's reasonable to ask you to trade away your privacy. And it's much easier to ask people to trade something away if they don't actually have a belief that it's one of their fundamental rights. What were your initial concerns when you first heard about the Keysight project? I was concerned about privacy, but a smart city is a city that runs on data. The idea of a smart city is that you use technology to collect data in new and unusual ways and leverage that data to help you manage the city better. And what that management looks like and who gets to define what better is really matters. Regardless of how those individual terms get debated or defined, a smart city is all about how do we collect and use data. So as a privacy advocate, I worry about what it means when we start embedding the tools to collect granular information about human movements and behaviors. Whether or not that information is personal would have on our ability to move freely about a neighborhood, our comfort level in participating in things like political protests in a neighborhood, basically just our ability to live without being watched, surveilled, monitored in the place that we live or the place that we work or even the neighborhood that we would want to go to play. And then, of course, as someone who spends a lot of time thinking about surveillance, I was worried because not all of the impacts of surveillance are about privacy. Surveillance is a process that not everyone experiences equally. There's all kinds of conversation now about who experiences surveillance differently and what we know from the public conversations that have been happening initiated by Black Lives Matter and other groups that are standing up against racial discrimination, particularly anti-Black racism is that not all people experience surveillance equally, that some people are over-surveilled, that some people are discriminated against, not just as a function of policing, but as a function of the way that technologies are designed. When you start thinking about surveillance devices that are embedded in cityscapes, equality issues are huge issues that raised many red flags for me and for CCLA when this project was being discussed. The other issues were around power. Technologies are not neutral. Technologies are tools that can be used for good or ill. Sometimes they can be used in such a way that one group of people will consider it good and another group of people will be adversely affected. But it really matters who has the power to design the technologies, who has the power to decide where they go and how they get used. Also, who benefits from getting them installed, from getting them maintained, both from the use of the data that they collect and from the fees that they would collect from the city. Data collection and digital surveillance often disproportionately impact racialized and low-income residents, community members who are already over-policed. I also spoke to Ben Green, who submitted an affidavit as part of the CCLA case. In his recent book, The Smart Enough City, Putting Technology in Its Place to Reclaim Our Urban Future, Ben Green, who is a professor of public policy at the University of Michigan, wrote, quote, police use algorithms to justify and perpetuate racist practices, end quote. One of the main applications of data science and algorithms in cities has been around policing technology. And in the book, I specifically focus on predictive policing, which is a set of algorithms that attempt to predict 
where crime is likely to occur or who's going to be involved in crime in order to help police proactively intervene or proactively patrol in certain neighborhoods. And there are a couple of key areas of discrimination and really the legitimization of racist practices involved here. One of them is at a pretty technical level, looking at how these algorithms actually operate, where what they're based on is not some ground truth notion of where every single crime has occurred or will occur, but is based on data about arrests and arrests of particular types of violations. That data tends to be highly skewed towards lower income and minority neighborhoods where police are more likely to patrol and arrest people and where the types of crimes that police are arresting people for and that are getting fed into these algorithms are actually perpetuated. There's both an issue of imbalance of where these crimes are occurring, but also in terms of what types of crimes are seen as central to what these algorithms are doing. They're never looking for examples of wage theft, for instance, and trying to intervene proactively in instances of wage theft. But more broadly, what they're doing is perpetuating a system of policing grounded in racist practices and politics. Oftentimes, these predictive policing algorithms have been adopted under a guise of progressive reform. They are seen as an opportunity for police departments facing scrutiny of discrimination and police abuse to be more objective and to be more rational and to simply be responding to the evidence of crime in a data-driven way rather than being uh, political racist actors. The Keyside Project became a major test of privacy rights in Canada. But before we get into the specific complaints that were raised against the project, it is helpful to understand exactly what we mean by a smart city and what was initially promised to the city of Toronto. A smart city is really this idea that emerged about a decade ago of integrating digital technologies such as data collection, artificial intelligence, sensors that can collect data, self-driving cars, into cities and city governments. So the smart city is this idea of using new technology to improve urban life and urban governance. Smart cities have really taken hold over the last decade as one of the common views on what the future of urban life and urban governance can and really should look like. The Keyside Project was one of the most ambitious efforts to develop smart cities in North America, at least. So the Keyside Project was this really ambitious smart city effort to try to have sidewalk labs come in and, in their language, build a city or at least a neighborhood from the internet up. It was visionary. It was to create a sustainable, equitable community on the Toronto's waterfront to serve as a test bed for new and emerging technologies that would place Toronto at the center of a smart city revolution. They used words like affordable housing. They used words like good jobs. They used words like sustainable development. And a big pillar of the project was always that it would try to be carbon neutral, lead the way in showing how cities could develop in ways that were environmentally responsible. 
and environmentally sustainable. So these are all not just unobjectionable, but visionary, great sounding. And there were lots of people that thought it was a really cool idea, particularly because it was being proposed by a sister company of Google. And despite Sidewalk Labs' attempt to distance themselves from their sibling company, the reality is that there were lots of people in Toronto whose mouths started salivating at the idea of Alphabet or Google money coming to the city. So that sounds great. What were some concerns around the project? It sounds really wonderful that we can use all this technology and solve all of these problems, but there's a lot that can go wrong. And there's been a lot of work over the last maybe five years in particular, showing how smart cities are really dangerous and are a poor way of thinking about the future of urban life, thinking specifically about the Keyside project. There were, of course, huge concerns about privacy. You have Google effectively coming in and getting to control huge amounts of what the infrastructure in that city will look like and collect an immense amount of data about the public. You also have issues around governance and about privatization, where rather than this neighborhood being developed by some sort of democratic body, some elected body from Toronto, many of these central decisions were going to be organized and run by this unelected, unaccountable private company. These issues were building on the broader understanding that had evolved over several years that smart cities were a really misguided way of thinking about urban progress, that the technologies that were being promised were not able to deliver on the types of social benefits that everyone was hoping for and brought a bunch of issues around surveillance and discrimination and austerity. However, as the project continued to develop, more insidious and dystopic details came to light. Can you tell us about the infamous Yellow Book and how it played a role here? So the Yellow Book is a Sidewalk Labs playbook. The head of Alphabet at one point said, what we really want is for someone to give us a city and let us see what we can do with it. He later claimed that was a joke. But the Yellow Book lays out all the things that Alphabet Google would do if somebody gave them a city. So it imagined an area that Sidewalk could control, like Disney World controls its own area in Florida. Disney World back in the 60s was very successful in persuading the Florida legislature to give it extraordinary exceptions to all the usual rules that govern city buildings. So things like zoning, procurement, density, all of these sort of dry city building things that are governed in most cities by a fairly strict set of rules and regulations developed over time to make sure that building that happens in cities is safe and fair but that critics would also say has a tendency to become a bit rigid and wrapped up in red tape. In the yellow book, Sidewalk imagined what would happen if we could just toss all those existing rules out the window and make things up as we went along. So the yellow book talked about things like Sidewalk getting taxation powers as a company, including property tax, collecting property tax or diverting property tax from municipal coffers to the company itself, to that private sector company. They talked about creating and controlling their own public services, including things like schools. So they wanted a role in educating our children in transit, in private road infrastructures, in public safety, in criminal justice. How if we had amazing levels of surveillance on our streets, would that help police keep law and order? 
leaving aside uh, all the reasons why we need democratic safeguards against police having access to anything and everything about us at all times. That idea is fundamental to a state that's not a police state, the idea that police can't have access to everything. And yet in the Yellow Book, there was this amazing imagining about how wonderful it would just be for law enforcement in such a data-rich, data-intense environment. Obviously, from a civil liberties perspective, that's a huge red flag. There was a rumor floating about by people who were paying a lot of attention to this project and to this company that such a thing existed. But it wasn't until fairly far on in the process of the Keyside project in Toronto that a reporter at the Globe and Mail, Josh O'Kane, actually managed to get a, get a look at a copy of it and publish an article that, for the first time in print in Toronto, really laid out some of these early visions and how, frankly, dystopian they were in contrast to the much more utopian rhetoric that the company was spewing about their purpose and that Waterfront Toronto was spewing about the vision for the Keyside Project. In response to the growing criticism and backlash against the project, Sidewalk Labs promised to de-identify data. However, those measures would not have been sufficient to protect the privacy of individuals. So this was one of the key topics that I focused on in the expert reports that I filed for the case was this sort of tension or debate around what's the level of privacy that these projects would entail. Sidewalk Labs was very vocal in its materials about caring about privacy and protecting privacy. Where that broke down was where you looked at some of the more specific details of how they were going to do that and how they were defining certain terms. The key issue was that a lot of their claims of privacy hinged on notions of anonymization, de-identification, non-identifiable data, and terms like that. Based on those terms, if they can say, all of the data will be de-identified, and then they can make lots of promises about how they're going to split sensitive and non-sensitive data based on that distinction, they can present a very responsible and careful image about privacy. The problem is that the ideas that they were relying on actually don't hold up. A lot of research for many years now has shown that de-identification is a bit of a myth, that data that we think is de-identified or it seems that sensitive features have been removed is actually not de-identified, that that data can be re-identified in various ways. If a set of data was your name and your address and the political party that you voted for and the last thing that you bought, then de-identified data would take away your name and your address, just leaving the opinions that you hold and the things that you bought. And the idea is then people can analyze that data and try to figure out what it means or look for patterns when they combine it with the same kinds of data about hundreds or thousands or millions of other people and do an analysis on that data that doesn't engage privacy because none of it in the end could be identified back to you or to me, to any individual person. The problem with the concept of de-identification is that there is an absolute ton of academic studies and evaluations that essentially tell us that there is absolutely no chance 
that de-identification in the age of big data can ever be made perfect, can ever provide 100% guarantee that any data set can't be re-identified. Because the fundamental nature of big data is that you collect more and more and that you combine pieces of data from different sources. So there are interesting studies that suggest that there are some pieces of data, first of all, that serve as a proxy for identity. So it's super easy to figure out that it's me, Brenda, in the data set. If you've got my postal code and the GPS tracking my location, because you can figure out by the GPS tracking that I'm in one place a lot, my home, you can figure out from the postal code that that's my neighborhood. And at that point, there's publicly available information that you can look up to figure out that I'm one of two or three or four people who live in my home. So it's a very simplistic example, but the basic point is de-identified data is data that has been stripped of personal identifiers so that it's supposed to be more privacy protective. And the problem with it is that technically it's harder and harder to ensure that it can't be re-identified to the point that many academics now say it's just impossible to give that guarantee. Despite the resistance, there were many people in Toronto who saw the Keyside project as an opportunity for the city. There were lots of arguments that were pro-sidewalk. First of all, it was technology is good. New technology, innovation is going to be a driver of Canada's economy. And if we let this Google-affiliated company come into Toronto, not only are they going to make us a hotbed of technology innovation, they're backed by this amazing buckets of money that Alphabet has. It's going to attract other big and exciting technology companies to Toronto. Particularly, if we can turn this neighborhood into a test bed, a neighborhood built from the internet up where companies could come in with their new and exciting ideas for technologies and experiment with them in the technology sandbox that was going to be Keyside, using the residents of that neighborhood of Toronto as their guinea pigs. So for people who thought that there are too many restrictions on how we develop technology, for people who thought that the only way forward for Canada's economy is to innovate and to attract foreign investment to fuel that innovation, this was a very attractive proposal. And then the pushback for anyone who said it wasn't is that, well, if you're not for innovation, you're a Luddite. That means you're anti-technology. So that was one of the lines of rhetoric that CCLA had to repeatedly counter because it's not about being against innovation. It's about calling for rights-respecting innovation. It's about wanting to have our cake and eat it too because we're talking about fundamental rights and freedoms. To get a better understanding of the community reaction to the Keysight project, we turn to Lester Brown, who you heard from at the beginning of the episode. In your affidavit, you state that you're not against smart city technologies when used to improve city services, but you were concerned about the specific smart technologies going in your neighborhood. What about the Keyside project made you uneasy? They have measurements of pollution levels or temperature or humidity. That kind's very impersonal and it's very understandable. I don't know whether people are going to object that much to that. But in this case, they were measuring people's activity, where they went, what they were doing. And they talked about anonymizing the data to make it anonymous. From what we could see, that was not very feasible and not possible. The other thing that we would have liked was some kind of a framework before this project was even thought about, before Waterfront Toronto signed on as a partner. There was none of that. 
this sort of a rush deal. There were a lot of questions and a lot of issues that people were not able to find the information regarding. And it seemed like a lot of secrecy surrounding the project. Those are the kind of things that made us uneasy, that it wasn't an open, transparent negotiation or deal. Lester was one of many in the neighborhood who were opposed to this development. People that were very much engaged in the digital community and in community benefits, these groups were in opposition. And I think that some of the local neighborhood were not that informed on some of these major issues and some of the major issues that could arise out of a project like that. And the consultations also were very problematic and that the consultations became almost a sales job. The first consultation I remember attending, they were all wearing t-shirts that said Sidewalk Lab on it. The main people that presented to us were just people trying to sell the idea of this project without a lot of answers. They would just say, well, we'll get that later. We'll get to that later. That'll be in the later documents. Wait till that comes out and you'll see all the answers in there. And the other thing was that some of the documents that they put out, like the Master Innovation Development Plan, were huge. You get a 1,500-page document on stuff. Even their summaries were also very lengthy, but that was one of the main things. And it was hard to really pin down sidewalk labs. It was just given that somehow they were going to make money off it. In early spring of 2020, Sidewalk Labs walked away from the Keyside project, citing unprecedented economic uncertainty due to COVID-19. Organizers, along with CCLA, believe it was a collective activism of thousands of individuals, awareness campaigns, and the legal action taken by CCLA that contributed to the end of the Sidewalk Labs project. What was your reaction when you heard the Keyside project was canceled? It was disbelief. It was like, no, that's not real. What's going on? Then there was this sort of brief period of genuine happiness because the Keyside project was brought to Toronto in 2017, and CCLA and I had spent three years fighting it, warning people about the problems, putting, pushing forward the litigation, facing a lot of hurdles. And so the idea that they walked away meant that we won. And then over time, disappointment crept in because of the way the narrative of the project end was framed and was being written, not by those of us who won, who got rid of them, but by the people who thought that it was a defeat. So when Dan Drokdorov announced that they were walking because it was no longer economically feasible, it was in the height of Toronto's battle against COVID-19. And there was a lot of people that just went, oh yeah, makes sense. Everything is so unsettled in the economy now because we're facing a global health pandemic. They're leaving, gee, what a terrible missed opportunity for Toronto. And no one questioned that was the reason. And yet there had been three years of consultations where thousands of people turned up and asked hard questions and registered their discomfort or their dissatisfaction or their dislike of this project. There have been people from all walks of life, ranging from Jim Balsillay, the former RIM CEO, to ACORN, which is a, a Toronto and Canadian national justice organization for low and moderate income people who were really vocal about the idea that this project was simply not going to provide enough affordable housing for the people who needed it to justify using public land. There were activists like Bianca Wiley. There was Ryerson Center for Free Expression that pulled activists and academics together and developed some pointed criticism about the project. There was Block Sidewalk, a grassroots group that started with a core of about 30 people and ended up with thousands of supporters 
who were organized and held meetings and drove turnout to public consultations, coordinated with international groups who were standing against other similar big tech incursions into local communities. There was good jobs for all. There were affordable housing advocates. There were climate action groups. There were student groups. There were so many people in Toronto and outside Toronto who rallied against this project. And yet all of those efforts weren't acknowledged when sidewalk clubs walked. And there was no pushback on that spin to the departure. The Keysight project highlights the need for timely legislation and policy to keep up with the ever-changing world of technology. This is essential in order to protect our civil liberties and maintain a healthy democracy. The project also serves as a reminder of the risks of data surveillance and an invitation to consider the role of private companies and public development and governance because technology is not going anywhere and will continue to be an essential part of day-to-day life. I think it's very valuable to think about what are positive models of there being some role for technology in cities. It's very different to think about what are positive models of smart cities. To me, smart cities are at their core based in the incredibly technocentric optimization logic of having more technology for the sake of it. To me, moving forward on a more positive path for technology in cities is really about moving away from the logic and the ideal of smart cities. And that's really a great deal of what I focus on in my book. And and that's the central theme throughout the book is how do we have a different way of approaching this? So rather than thinking about smart cities where technology is really an end in and of itself, we want to think about smart enough cities which is in many ways more about a process of thinking about technology. The goal is not to be smart in some abstract sense, but merely to be smart enough to achieve broader types of social goals around democracy and justice and equity and livability and so on. It's really about finding ways to think about the both opportunities and the drawbacks and dangers of new technology but really keeping at the center the broader social and political vision. And so this is really hard. And I think that cities are still trying to figure out how to do this because we have swung so far from one direction of being completely techno-utopian and wanting to throw technology at everything to another end where now there's a sense of technology is incredibly dangerous and is harmful and it should never be used. And I think certainly the latter has been far more appropriate and really is in response to the overreaches of smart city projects. The very open question of how can cities actually do this more effectively? For me, there are a couple principles that I think about in the book and draw out as being necessary for this. One is having a much more longer-term approach to reform and really centering the political and social values over technological value, rather than coming at it from a perspective of, here's this great machine learning system, how can we use that system to solve X problem? Instead, it's about having a longer-term vision of how do we make our city more equitable? How do we improve the livability of our city? How do we deal with poverty in this city? And having a long-term strategy and then being able to see where technology may or may not play a role within that. 
The second that there's a sense of how can we use technology for X, you start being focused on the technology rather than on the problem. In conclusion, do you expect to see similar projects like this one proposed in Toronto or Canada anytime soon? Absolutely. We are definitely going to see similar projects like this being proposed. And in fact, there are government-sponsored smart city projects all across Canada. We're not going to see the end of this conviction or theory or hypothesis that the more we know about a group of people or a particular kind of transaction or a particular feature of our environment, then the better we are able to leverage what we know for human good. And sometimes that's going to be true, and sometimes it's going to be false. But the power of that belief, the power in the potential magical ability of technology to transform the world that we live in is seductive, and it's not going to go away. Smart cities are like a multi-billion dollar industry around the world, and that's not going to go away. Waterfront Toronto is already in the process of looking at what the next steps are since Sidewalk Labs has walked and the Keyside project with Sidewalk Labs is over. They're looking at Keyside 2.0. They're trying to figure out what their next steps are, and it'll be very interesting to see what they decide to do there. But in general, I think that it's absolutely the case that we are going to have to grapple with appropriate ways, rights-respecting ways, that technologies can be used in cities and communities to improve people's lives without attempting to manipulate or control people's behavior. That's going to be one of the challenges in Toronto and in cities across Canada over the next 20-25 years. Thank you to the team of amazing volunteers who put this episode together. We could not have done this without you. Before we close, a note of acknowledgement. We wish to acknowledge the land on which CCLA operates. Toronto and CCLA are in the dish with one spoon territory. The land I'm reporting on today is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, and is also home to many diverse First Nation, Inuit, and Métis peoples. We're grateful to have the opportunity to work on this land. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe to Justice Versus wherever you get your podcasts and a review us on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for joining us today. We hope you join us next time as we continue to learn, advocate, and educate on Canada's most crucial human rights issues. Until next time.